This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Is it work? Excellent. Good morning. The clip came off. No wonder. I thought it's not that I'm a klutz. It's the clip. I'm blaming it on the clip. So give me a second here. Hey, good morning. My name's Tyler, and I am the pastor of worship here. So I know how to fix this. We'll see. We will see here very shortly. All right, we're in business. All right. Hey, there's going to be some opportunities to participate uh, this morning. Typically, we read scripture before the person gets up to speak, but I wanted to have an opportunity to introduce the passage just a little bit before we read it. So we're going to read it in just a second. And, uh, you know, I get an opportunity to speak once in a while. And uh, jokingly, uh, I always like to say, well, I hope I get the passage because sometimes I get assigned to a date and I don't always know what's going to be at Todd's gracious. He'll say, you know, this is kind of what's on the schedule, but if you want to speak about something else or change it a little bit, you go ahead and do that. So uh, I'm, I'm always afraid I'm going to look on the schedule and see that I'm supposed to talk about the four horses of the apocalypse or something like that. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of scary. But this morning, when I looked at the schedule, I was really excited because I love this passage of Scripture. I'm sure for many of you, uh, you, you like it as well. But anyway, we're in a series right now called The Divine Mentor. We're following this book right here. This happens to be Lou's book. It has his name on it. He doesn't know I have it. But anyway, here it is. It's The Divine Mentor. And if you haven't gathered it yet, what this book is really encouraging us to be is to be people of the Word. To be people who are impacted by the Word of God. Now, how many people here have ever had problems with having a regular devotion time. Okay, anybody with your hand down? I'm going to call you a liar. I'm just going to come out and say, liar! Okay? That seems to be a universal. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But that's kind of what this book is about. But it's really good. It's taking us on a journey. And uh, this morning, we are in uh, John 15, as Janelle said. And I wanted to set up this passage a little bit. I wanted to remind you what's been happening in the lives of Disciples. So as we come into the story, we feel some of the emotion that they're feeling. You see, it had been a short time before this. Jesus has been making his way from up in northern, northern Israel, and he's making his way towards Jerusalem. And uh, a week or two before this, in the town of Beth, uh, Bethany, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And that was quite a stir. And, and the, the text says that a lot of people believed in Jesus because of that. And a week before, about a week before this story, Jesus makes his triumphal entry. You know, we're, we're coming up on Easter and we're going to be celebrating that. And people are lining the streets, right? And they're putting palm branches down and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, so, you know, the disciples are getting excited because they've had an idea about what's coming, right? They've been preparing for this. In fact, they've been having discussions amongst themselves about who's going to be the big shot, right, when Jesus sets up his kingdom. Because there's a sense of conflict that's been happening. 
And now it seems like maybe Jesus has come in. In fact, you know, they're making there's asking Jesus questions about the temple and, you know, how glorious it's going to be. But then things start happening where this is becoming unraveled, because what Jesus says, you see all these stones. Yeah, they're all going to be torn down. And he and he starts speaking more frequently about this idea that somehow he has to die, that he's going to be betrayed. And there's confusion about that. And, and Jesus, you know, when they talk about who's going to be greatest, what he does is he he wraps himself and becomes like a servant serving them. So the world's getting turned upside down. And the triumphal entry leads to that there's conflict that's happening with with different people in the Jewish crowd who are saying, who are you? Who are you know, who is this Messiah? Who is this? Are you the Christ? You know, I mean, and, and they're feeling this conflict. And Jesus, uh, Jesus, the night that we're reading about, he even goes on to say that one of his disciples is going to betray him. And, and the, the disciples are like, who, who would do that? You know, and and Jesus kind of tells them plainly, he says, well, the one I dip the bread, I'm going to dip my bread here and I'm going to pass it to him. And then he whispers something to Judas, and Judas goes out. And the text tells us that they think there's confusion. It, it's so, it seems so unbelievable that this is the way it's all going down after all this time. But they think that Judas is going out maybe to make a purchase because he was kind of the group treasurer, right? Well, then Jesus, and you remember they had discussions with Jesus before about that they're going to be his followers, that they've given up so much. And, and Jesus tells them, hey, I... You're going to gain so much more through following me. But now, you know what he's saying? He's saying, where I'm going, you can't follow. And they're confused about that. I mean, the whole thing seems like maybe it's becoming unraveled, you know. And and so Peter, he's, he, he goes, look, even if everybody else turns away, Jesus, I'll, I'll fight for you. In fact, Peter had brought, at some point in the evening, right, he gets a sword. He's ready to fight. He's ready to prove. And Jesus tells him, and now Peter, maybe maybe he had a reputation amongst the disciples as being one of the most bold. He was out there. He was the one, he was the first to raise his hand and volunteer. And Jesus tells him that, you know, before the night's up, you're going to deny me three times. What is going on? Another clue that the emotional tension, Right? That existential moment said, what have I been doing with my life the last three years? What have I been following? What is this leading up to? Because Jesus is saying things as you read through, through John 13, 14, 15. He's saying, look, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Okay? And, uh, you know, they, they have that last supper together. Um, some of the Gospels record that they sang a hymn. And then right at the end of verse 14, or excuse me, chapter 14, it says that they went out. Okay? So they went out from where they were having this. Okay? And, and we pick up where we're sure the story where they are later across what's called the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem. Okay? But they're somewhere in between there. And scholars will say, because... You remember now, when we come to this passage we're about ready to read from John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Well, 
That sounds like a great kind of, uh, what's, what's the word, agrarian society, right? A farming culture, people kind of know what that means. But it actually means a lot more to that as Jesus' disciples were Jews. Because that picture is used a lot in the Old Testament. That the Heavenly Father, God Almighty, has planted a garden. And it's Israel. The, the problem is, in the Old Testament, a lot of times that imagery, what follows it is, how come all after all the tending and the planting and the walls that I put up, how come I only get sour grapes? And so, in the same way that Jesus has been drawing a contrast, right? When he had his last meal with the disciples, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. I'm establishing a new kind of community. A new way of relating to your Heavenly Father, right? And and so in the same way that he maybe said earlier in his life, he said, I'm the good shepherd. So he's drawing a contrast from the old way of doing things that didn't produce transformation in life to a new way where we're connected to the life of Jesus. And so as he pulls out on this imagery of the vine, it's very familiar to the disciples, And Jesus says, I am the true vine. And not only that, but on their way, wherever they're at, scholars think that it's possible that they were passing a vineyard, you know. And so Jesus was a master at taking things that we knew and and comparing them to a truth that he was trying to get across. So taking something we know and adding something new to it in order to help us to understand new teaching, right? So it's possible that he was going by a vineyard or something, but it's also possible that there were sculptures. In fact, I have a note here. I'm going to read it right off of here. Josephus records that the the temple, I think I have it here. I don't have it here, but I remember it. So there there was these very large, ornate sculptures of a golden vine and grapes to remind Israelites of that imagery that God had planted a vineyard from which it represented God's people, from which he wanted life to emanate, right? And so perhaps as Jesus and his disciples are on their way, there's somewhere along there that we have the high priestly prayer of John 17. But Jesus takes some imagery and, and now he's going to paint a new picture for us, Okay. And with that, I'm going to go ahead. Can we put the scripture up on the... And I want to read this. Because I want us to feel the emotional impact. You see? The disciples are like, what is going on? What are we going to do about this rising sense of conflict between the words in the way of Jesus and the words in the way of religious leaders and the Roman world? What is happening? So let's see what Jesus cares about and what he focuses on. So in John 15, remember, right at the end of of chapter 14, they say that they're going out. And he says this in John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's our text for today. And I want to draw a few conclu- uh, conclusions from this, okay? These are not, uh, you're going to see it's not very profound, all right? But in that emotional context that I tried to, to paint, because I don't know about you, but, you know, when I saw the title that had been placed, that Todd had placed about refreshing, and I looked at the passage that thought, that's about pruning, and I don't automatically, emotionally connect refreshment and pruning. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm, I don't know how this passage hits you, but I think, hmm, pruning, that does not sound like fun, Okay. But the emotional impact, I want you to feel this, of this passage is that our Father in Heaven will do anything. He will do anything to give us life in His Son. God cares about the outcome of your life and what its purpose and what its impact is going to be more than you do. He cares more about the impact of my life than I do. And so it's Jesus is talking to us, hey, remain in my love. As Jesus has been putting his love on display, and we're going to talk about that more in a moment, he's inviting, it's a, it's a huge invitation. Look, I want you to share in the life that I have. I want you there. So remain, hang on to that. And so as we look at this, it's huge. The, the love that comes through this. That, that song we just sang, it's good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by the, the, those words. They were so perfect for this morning. Because it, who God is and, and how he treats me and how he views me has such an impact on who I am, right? It really defines who I am. And ultimately then, who I am defines what I do, what I say, how I live. And so Jesus is wanting us to infuse that life. That fruit fruit is really the life of Christ in me being lived out in what I say, what I do, and the way that I say and I do it, and the when of when I say and do it. So that the life of Christ becomes evidence that the Lord Jesus Christ is extending his rule and reign in the world. That the kingdom of God is at hand. It proclaims the message that Jesus proclaimed, right? When he shows up and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is here now for the taking. And that's the kind of fruit that God wants to produce. He wants my life to mean something. So that's how I want us to read that. When I, uh, when I was young... Uh, uh, not that I needed to be encouraged or that we need to be encouraged this way, but there's a real tendency in my in my flesh, if you will, to to think that my performance is going to somehow what's going to make me good. Okay, we've talked about this before. You've heard this before, and and it happens at a subconscious level. I don't always think about it, but I had a cousin one time, and that was the environment kind of that I grew up in a little bit. The religious environment. You, you just do the right thing. Okay, and, and that otherwise you're not good, well, kind of a. 
And, and she said something, and at first it hit me as sacrilegious. She said, you know what? Unless God is all good and all loving, I'm not going to obey him. And my reaction was, you can't say that. Right? You, you can't say, well, wait a second. Will I really, at a deep, spiritual, emotional level, give myself, Give myself to someone who is not really all good and all loving. See, it's one thing to, to just say that God is loves unconditionally, but I have to adopt it at a deep level. See, the, the truth is, I've wasted a lot of time negotiating with God when things, when my life gets, seem like they're out of control. It's though what I'm trying to do is establish, wait, how, how am I supposed to understand this in relationship that you love me and that you're good to me, right? And so there's like this emotional, and it's not always on a conscious level, but I waste energy negotiating that. What God is inviting me into is a love, excuse me, love relationship where by faith I can say, God is all good, all loving, all the time. Right. And so what is happening is somehow a part of that. All right. So that's one of the conclusions I want to draw. Okay, and this next one is very profound, too. And I think we ought to make up T-shirts. Okay, I think we ought to make T-shirts. It's this pruning happens. Doesn't that sound like a great slogan? Pruning happens. Again, you know, when you look at this passage, don't you when you first look at it, there's this feeling like, hmm, pruning does not sound good because it sounds painful. If it's painful, it's bad. Bad people get pruned. Good people don't. That's not what it says. It actually says, hey, when you're, what's bad, by the way, is to get cut off. I don't know if you cut off, caught that. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time that. To be get cut off is bad, but to be pruned is good. Because what Jesus is saying, it's, it identifies us as his children. Hey, you're bearing fruit already. But God, because he loves you so much, he wants to see you produce as much fruit as possible. So it becomes a sign of God's love in my life that he continues the pruning process. This word prune, I'm, I'm not sure the Greek, maybe it's the word they use to talk about trimming their, their grape branches, you know. So if sure you're familiar with that. So sometimes with, with grapes, when they're growing them, even though they're producing fruit, if they know how to trim them back at the right time in the right place, they come back and they produce a whole lot more grapes. And I see Lori's bobbing her head because she worked at a winery, right? So, so here's the deal. It shows that God cares that he's going to prune me. The word pruning, by the way, other places in the New Testament, it, it gets translated as cleansing, cleaning. So God is continuing to clean my life so that the character and the quality of Jesus gets to permeate in the things that I'm doing. Right? So pruning's not bad. Pruning means the good things come to an end sometimes so that something better can come out of it. Did you hear that? 
You ever hit a circumstance in your life and it feels like feels like the circumstances in life are kind of set up against us? And if we're honest, we know and we you know we we play back that theology that God is in control of everything. We hear about our neighbor who just got promoted in his job. He's an ungodly person, and in my job, I was trying to be a witness for Christ, and look what happened. You see? See, when we, when we look at it, that thing, we look at it wrong. The pruning is a sign that God loves us. Hebrews picks up this, and I'm going to invite us to read this aloud, okay? So it's, it's a rather long passage, but it expresses this principle so well. And so I'm going to invite you to read it aloud, and I'm going to listen to you as you read. You ready? Set? Read. Do you hear that idea expressed in those verses? We had taken discipline as a sign of love, right? It's a sign of God's love for us. So we can be glad that God is doing that. And he wants the very best. He wants our lives to produce the very best it possibly can. All right, we're moving on. In this passage... There's this reality that our life in Jesus is relational and dynamic, right? So the fact that Jesus would encourage his disciples, right? Hey, remain in me. Well, Jesus, we've been following you for three years. What are you talking about, right? No, remain in my love and in connection with me. And so... Maybe what Jesus is trying to point out is that it's not simply a positional thing. In other words, you won't find the disciples as a way of saying, hey, I'm, I'm a big deal. I'm a disciple because uh, I was with Jesus and, uh, you know, I was with him right, right up until the very end. I did this. I did that. See, it wasn't, you know, and you might remember that Jesus um, criticize some of the religious folks of his day because they say, you know, hey, why are you getting on us, man? We're Abraham's children, right? We've been given the law. We have the temple, right? We tithe regularly. We, we follow the law. That kind of positional relationship, Jesus condemns and invites us into a, a dynamic relationship. Now, let's suppose I'm coming up on 25 years married to my wife this year, Wendy. I know I'm old. Anyway, suppose you came up to me. Thank you. But suppose you came up to me and said, well, do you do you love your wife? I said, yeah, I married her 25 years ago. Would you take that? He's like, that'd be kind of that's kind of strange. If I said, though, that, uh, well, 
I do love my wife. We take walks together. We stand out on our deck and we, we uh, have conversations. We talk about life. We share with one another what God is doing in our heart. We make plans together. You see, if I started sharing some of those kinds of things, I'm sorry to feel guilty I don't do more of it, right? But anyway, see, those are the, it's that dynamic relationship, and that's what Jesus is talking about. Remain in me. You remember just a couple verses or a couple chapters before this. Now, Jesus has been with his disciples for three years, right? I mean, he's taught them everything. He's been serving them. He's been, he's been lifting them up. And yet still at the table there, the way the passage reads is in verse 2 of 13, it says, Jesus, knowing that God had placed all things under his feet, that he had come from God, that he was returning to the Father. By the way, huge identity. That's going to come in Portland. He knew who he was. And so what was he able to do? It says, well, he got up on the table, took off his clothes, and he... He, he dons the garments of a servant and begins washing the disciples' feet. He's continuing to demonstrate his love, right? If I'm going to be filled with the life of Jesus Christ, I have to continue to experience the love of Christ. I can't share the love of Christ with others if I don't continue to experience it. If I don't continue to go to Jesus and let him wash my feet and let him speak his words of love to me, then love becomes disconnected from relationship that's dynamic and personal. So Jesus is saying, he goes, look, remain in me and I'm going to be in you. Continue this love relationship and, and if you look at the, the surrounding context, and if you go to 1 John, I'm going to point it out in a second here, but there's so much connected about loving and how I live. Loving and how I live. And it's being connected relationally. So my expression of faith, righteousness, if you will, is about right relationship as much as it is about right, doing something right. I need to hear from Jesus who I am and whose I am if I'm going to be his representative in the world. So Jesus with his disciples, there's all this turmoil. They're not sitting down and developing a strategy for how they're going to defeat you know, the religious leaders. Jesus is not giving them information. right? Just simply, hey, this is, this is the, the theological points you need to remember, right? No, what he's saying is, remain in me. And he goes on in this context, in the surrounding context. Let me make sure I'm on the right slide here. And he ties these three things together, okay? He ties them very intimately together. I guess you can see kind of three circles. It's the word of God, my relationship to God, the love of God, and my obedience to God. And you see that over and over in these, in these last words of Jesus leading up to the cross in John's gospel. And then if you go to John's letters, man, he hammers that home once again. There's this 
connection between the Word of God, the love of God, and the obedience to God. In fact, let's read some of them. Okay, I'm going to have you read them. And these are some of the verses out of John. Let's read these aloud. You see that connection to God's word and life relationship. Next one. Do you hear those words of relationship, love, obedience? They all flow together. I think I have one more. So, when I come and I hear the Word of God, it's not just to hear duty. But it's to hear who I am, whose I am. It's about relationship, right? So I put these words over the top of it. It's the spirit of truth, the the spirit of God speaking to my life. And it's out of my identity of of being a child of God. Just a little bit later in the same context, Jesus starts talking about, look, I haven't called you slaves. You know what a slave does? A slave obeys out of duty because... The person over them, just their authority. A son, a daughter, relates. I like uh, Mike's expressions. The family business always makes me think of the Godfather or something, right? It's a family business, right? I, don't, I forget how he rubs his face, but anyway. But the Spirit who speaks identity, I identify as the one whom God loves. He's made me His son. And so my obedience flows out of that. It's interesting. You can see that pattern in Scripture. I briefly mentioned it in 13, uh, from John 13. But you see that Jesus' identity is established in Scripture before he fulfills what the Father tells him to do. At Jesus' baptism, he experiences, This is my Son, who I am well. I am so well pleased in him. This is my Son. What has Jesus done at that point? Nothing. This is my son. And then he goes out, right? So my obedience flows out of my identity as a child of God. Now I bring that up because we're going to talk about soap. Anybody know what soap is? So in Wayne Cadero's book, he talks about soap. Does anybody know what the S stands for? O? A? P. Okay. So here's the deal. I've been doing this for a little while. And I started off, and I, I mentioned that we have all struggled with our devotions. Am I right? We've, we've struggled. My wife and I were talking about it this week. Wendy. It's a joke between Janelle and I. But anyway, uh, and she said, you know, her concern was, it's because this is, this is a struggle that people have. In fact, I heard a statistic recently, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is because I'm shocked. The statistic was how many pastors have a regular 
daily devotional time. I would hope that we're doing better as a whole congregation, right? People struggle with this. It's a process. So I get that. My hope isn't to shame people into doing something, right? But, but here's the thing. I am not a writer. I don't like writing, okay? I've struggled with that. I heard at one time there was some group out there that like made a major deal. Out of, they were rebelling against the whole idea of journaling, right? And their big truth is the fact that Jesus... Does it ever say anywhere that Jesus journaled? No, he was not a journaler, right? Here's the other thing. This passage is not strictly about doing daily devotions. That's not what it's about. It is, however, about having a devotional life. I'm devoted. I'm devoting my heart. I'm devoting my life to staying connected to the life of Jesus. And what a great way to do that is to be in his word. Now, I am not a writer. I was, uh, this was modeled for me. I was coached in this a little bit. And I finally, I'm able to do this. And I think it follows the spirit of Wayne Cadero's stuff. It's not probably exactly. But my point is, if we do something, it's better than doing nothing, right? In other words, the devotions we do do are better than the ones than we don't do. Can I hear an amen? amen. All right. So... This is my journal right here. See, I don't write a whole lot. I purposely got it small. All right. And what I do is I start to read. And I'm looking at... Now, I'm trying to train myself. So here's, here's the other thing about this. We're supposed to train in righteousness, right? I don't go from zero to 100, right? And, and if you're just starting a regular practice, it's, it's like having a flabby muscle. You're not going to start curling 50-pound barbells, right? you got to start, and it's that repeated activity. And what I love about this particular, the soap, is that I am rehearsing the exercise of encountering Jesus, listening, and responding. Encounter, listen, respond. Encounter, listen, respond, right? And as I learn to hear the voice of Jesus, I become more attuned. Like the sheep out in the middle of a thing someplace. So that when the master calls, I'm like, hey, I recognize that voice. That's a good voice to follow. He provides for me, right? So I'm able to do this. If I can do this, you can do this too, Okay. It's very simple, and I'm going to illustrate it for you. But this is just an illustration, okay, of how it can work, because I don't want us to go through this series. Well, there's two reasons. I want to show you that it can be done, because if I can do it, you can do it. I really believe that. And secondly, I'm hoping that I'm the first one amongst many of us who might be willing to share, what is God saying to you? What do you sense God saying to you through your word? And how is he bringing about fruit? How is he transforming your life, right? So that's the other reason I'm sharing it. You'll see if I can do it, you can do it. And secondly, I'm hoping I'm the first to share. That others of us in the weeks ahead, as we continue to go through this book, others of us will step up and say, hey, you know what? This is what I experienced. This is how I experienced the voice of God. All right.
I don't lost my place in my notes here. Okay. Anyway. So what I do is I I invite God. I say, Lord, because I don't want just information. I want an encounter, right? I want a mystical sense that God is present and He's there. So God, speak to me, and and you know, and because it's not just information, I can read something I've read multiple times because I'm looking for what God wants to speak to me through that passage today, right? Doesn't matter. So I I write a little S on my paper. And I begin to read, and I'm looking for that thing that this kind of is, you know what? That kind of jumps out at me. And so I'll write that scripture down. And then I make observations, and the way I was taught is I make them very personal. In other words, I don't just say, Jesus has said that not to be afraid. I said, Jesus has told me I don't have to be afraid. I personalize everything. God is speaking to me in this passage. And then the application, I'm looking for that thing that says that I can measure that says at the end of the day, I did something that's in response to that. And honestly, sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't. But I'm trying to develop that muscle. God speaks. I respond. God speaks. I respond. And so sometimes I look back and say, oh, yeah, I did that. I can check that off. And so I'm looking for something measurable. Something I can tell. Yes, I did it. If I say something like, well, I'm going to think about love today well did i you know how much you know how much do i have to do before i check that one off you know what i'm saying i want something very specific easy measurable and if it can be something external so it's not just i'm going to think about something i'm going to pray about something but i'm going to do something right i'm going to do something so i i write down an idea for an application and then the prayer related to that so that's what i do so i wanted to give you an example I sat down to do this not too long ago, and I'm with a group of guys, and we're going through Mark. And I'll be honest, on this particular day, I was feeling a little bit discouraged. Okay? Not a big deal, but a little discouraged. This is the verse I wrote down. It's from Mark 1.17. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. As you can guess, I'm a pastor. I probably have read this before. But because where I'm at, and I'm inviting God to speak, let me share with you some of the observations I made. And what I was reminded of is that Jesus is telling me that he wants me with him. He wants me to follow him. That's encouraging. Jesus wants me. Secondly, observation was, you know, because, you know, life can feel overwhelming. Amen? Amen. Okay, so for a couple of you, life can be filled. Everybody else, no, no, I'm teasing. All right. Life can feel overwhelming. Amen? Amen. All right. So I was feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And what I noticed in this is that Jesus is asking me just to follow him. And it says, I will send you out. So that transforming work that impacts my ministry is something that Jesus is going to do. So as I respond and just follow Right. I'm going to do and in my application that day. I just try to say, hey, I'm going to try and not get distracted by things I feel pressured by and ask simply the question, what does God want me to do? What's what's important? Let me choose rather than react. That was my application, by the way. But it came out of that observation. I just need to follow. Jesus is going to do the transforming work. Right. And then. So now, now it's planted a seed in my heart and my mind a little later on in the day. And I think it was Mike, but he says it wasn't. But somebody was talking about 
something like the, the Empire Trade-Up Program. You know what that is? You really ought to sign up for it. What it, may, what it is, is I get to trade my measly kingdom and empire for being a part of God's big story, his kingdom and his empire, right? And this reminds me that when Jesus comes in and we follow, if I died of my own stuff, that he's going to make my story bigger. I get to be a part of something much bigger. It's simple in the sense of, but it's hard. I have to die a little every day. And so, you know, there's a little death. By the way, to die a thousand little deaths is much easier than dying the big death with lots of regret because you didn't die all the daily dies. Does that make sense? Anyway, another message. Better to die daily. (laughs) Die daily. All right. But those are some of my observations and in prayer. Now, see, I'm flexing that muscle. God speaks. He speaks to me about who I am, what he's called me to do and to be. And as I follow that, and I don't do it perfectly, but as I am headed in the right direction, I'm hoping, I, t- I have this theory about life that life tends to spiral. Have you noticed? Like, if marriage is going down, the, it always feels like things are circling and spiraling. They either spiral down or they spiral up. I want to make sure that my life is spiraling towards Jesus. I don't do it perfectly. I cycle around, but I want to get closer to the life of Jesus. I see I'm out of time. I want to end with a quote. I'm going to invite the worship team on up. Wayne Cadero, in his book, he's talking about the devil's attempt to keep us away from God's word, right? He says, he attacks your relationship with the Lord by trying to keep you away from the Word. As you dry up, you become more vulnerable to temptation. Suddenly, this tawdry thing looks like a good option. Or that unhealthy relationship looks enticing. Or those skewed ways of thinking seem right. Everything becomes negotiable. Remember this. If the devil can keep you away from the Word, he steals the Father's main tool for fruitfulness in your life. As I come to God's word, that pruning process, that cleansing process happens every day. And if I make small course adjustments every day, someday my life is in a whole different place than if I stay static. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you want us, that you invite us into your love. Thank you that with your word you refresh us. You prepare us for life. And you make us fruitful so that our lives get to be a part of your big story. Thank you, Lord. And and encourage us to find ways and to hear your voice and how we can incorporate your word into our life. Lord, we need your help. We confess our weakness today. And we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.